Section 35 of Fairy Tales from Hans Christian Andersen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. Fairy Tales from Hans Christian Andersen. Translated by Mrs. Edgar Lucas. The Marsh King's Daughter. Part 1. The storks have a great many stories, which they tell their little ones, all about the bogs and the marshes. They suit them to their ages and capacity. The youngest ones are quite satisfied with cribble-crabble or some such nonsense, but the older ones want something with more meaning in it, or at any rate something about the family. We all know one of the two oldest and longest tales which have been kept up among the storks. The one about Moses, who was placed by his mother on the waters of the Nile, and found there by the king's daughter. How she brought him up, and how he became a great man whose burial place nobody to this day knows. That is all common knowledge. The other story is not known yet, because the storks have kept it among themselves. It has been handed on from one mother stork to another for more than a thousand years, and each succeeding mother has told it better and better till we now tell it best of all. The first pair of storks who told it, and who actually lived it, had their summer quarters on the roof of the Viking's timbered house up by Vidmosen, the wild bog, in Winsisel. It is in the county of Hring, high up towards the Ska, in the north of Jutland, if we are to describe it according to the authorities. There is still a great bog there, which we may read about in the county chronicles. The district used to be under the sea at one time, but the ground has risen, and it stretches for miles. It is surrounded on every side by marshy meadows, quagmires, and peat bogs, on which grow cloudberries and stunted bushes. There is nearly always a damp mist hanging over it, and seventy years ago it was still overrun with wolves. It may well be called the wild bog and one can easily imagine how desolate and dreary it was among all these swamps and pools a thousand years ago. In detail, everything is as much the same now as it was then. The reeds grow to the same height, and have the same kind of long purple-brown leaves with feathery tips as now. The birch still grows there with its wild bark and its delicate, loosely hanging leaves. With regard to living creatures, the flies still wear their gauzy draperies of the same cut, and the storks, now as then, still dress in black and white, with long red stockings. The people certainly then had a very different cut for their clothes than at the present day, but if any of them, serf or huntsman, or anybody at all, stepped on the quagmires, the same fate befell him a thousand years ago as would overtake him now if he ventured on them. In he would go, and down he would sink to the marsh king, as they called him. He rules down below over the whole kingdom of bogs and swamps. He might also be called King of the Quagmires, but we prefer to call him the Marsh King, as the storks did. We know very little about his rule, but that is perhaps just as well. Near the bogs, close to the arm of the Kattegat, called the Limfjord, lay the timbered hall of the Vikings with its stone cellar, its tower, and its three stories. The storks had built their nest on the top of the roof, and the mother stork was sitting on the eggs which she was quite sure would soon be successfully hatched. 
One evening Father Stork stayed out rather late, and when he came back he looked somewhat ruffled. "'I have something terrible to tell you,' he said to the Mother Stork. "'Don't tell it to me, then,' she answered. "'Remember that I am sitting. It might upset me, and that would be bad for the eggs.' "'You will have to know it,' said he. "'She has come here, the daughter of our host in Egypt. She has ventured to take the journey, and now she has disappeared.' She who is related to the fairies? Tell me all about it. You know I can't bear to be kept waiting now I am sitting. Look here, mother. She must have believed what the doctor said, as you told me. She believed that the marsh flowers up here would do something for her father, and she flew over here in feather plumage with the other two princesses, who have come north every year to take the baths to make themselves young. She came, and she has vanished. You go into too many particulars, said the mother stork. The eggs might get a chill, and I can't stand being kept in suspense. I have been on the outlook, said the father stork, and tonight, when I was among the reeds where the quagmire will hardly bear me, I saw three swans flying along, and there was something about their flight which said to me, Watch them. They are not real swans. They are only in swan's plumage. You know, mother, as well as I, that one feels things intuitively, whether or not they are what they seem to be. Yes, indeed, she said. But tell me about the princess. I am quite tired of hearing about swan's plumage. You know that in the middle of the bog there is a kind of lake, said the father stork. You can see a bit of it if you raise your head. Well, there was a big alder stump between the bushes and the quagmire, and on this the three swans settled flapping their wings and looking about them. Then one of them threw off the swan's plumage, and I at once recognized in her our princess from Egypt. There she sat, with no covering but her long black hair. I heard her beg the two others to take good care of the swan's plumage while she dived under the water to pick up the marsh flower, which she thought she could see. They nodded and raised their heads, and lifted up the loose plumage. What are they going to do with it? thought I, and she no doubt asked them the same thing, and the answer came. She had ocular demonstration of it. They flew up into the air with the feather garment. Just you duck down, they cried. Never again will you fly about in the guise of a swan. Never more will you see the land of Egypt. You may sit in your swamp. Then they tore the feather garment into a hundred bits, scattering the feathers all over the place like a snowstorm. Then away flew those two good-for-nothing princesses. "'What a terrible thing!' said the mother stork. "'But I must have the end of it.' The princess moaned and wept. Her tears trickled down upon the alder stump, and then it began to move, for it was the marsh king himself who lives in the bog. I saw the stump turn round, and saw that it was no longer a stump. It stretched out long, miry branches like arms. The poor child was terrified, and she sprang away on the shaking quagmire where it would not even bear my weight, far less hers. She sank at once, and the alder stump after her. It was dragging her down. Great black bubbles rose in the slime, and then there was nothing more to be seen. Now she is buried in the wild bog, and never will she take back the flowers she came for to Egypt. You could not have endured the sight, mother. You shouldn't even tell me anything of the sort just now. It might have a bad effect upon the eggs. 
The princess must look after herself. She will get help somehow. If it had been you or I now, or one of our sort, all would have been over with us. I mean to keep a watch, though, every day, said the stork, and he kept his word. But a long time passed, and then one day he saw that a green stem shot out from the fathomless depths, and when it reached the surface of the water, a leaf appeared at the top which grew broader and broader. Next a bud appeared close by it, and one morning at dawn, just as the stork was passing, the bud opened out in the warm rays of the sun, and in the middle of it lay a lovely baby, a little girl, looking just as fresh as if she had just come out of a bath. She was so exactly like the princess from Egypt, that at first the stork thought it was she who had grown small. But when he put two and two together, he came to the conclusion that it was her child, and the Marsh King's. This explained why she appeared in a water lily. She can't stay there very long, thought the stork, and there are too many of us in my nest as it is, but an idea has just come into my head. The Viking's wife has no child, and she has often wished for one. As I am always said to bring the babies, this time I will do so in earnest. I will fly away to the Viking's wife with the baby, and that will indeed be a joy for her. So the stork took up the little girl, and flew away with her to the timbered house, where he picked a hole in the bladder skin which covered the window, and laid the baby in the arms of the Viking's wife. This done, he flew home, and told the mother stork all about it, and the young ones heard what he said. They were old enough to understand it. So you see that the princess is not dead. She must have sent the baby up here, and I have found a home for her. I said so from the very first, said the mother stork. Now just give a little attention to your own children. It is almost time to start on our own journey. I feel a tingling in my wings every now and then. The cuckoo and the nightingale are already gone, and I hear from the quails that we shall soon have a good wind. Our young people will do themselves credit at the maneuvers if I know them all right. How delighted the Viking's wife was when she woke in the morning and found the little baby on her bosom. She kissed and caressed it, but it screamed and kicked terribly, and seemed anything but happy. At last it cried itself to sleep, and as it lay there a prettier little thing could not have been seen. The Viking's wife was delighted, body and soul were filled with joy. She was sure that now her husband and all his men would soon come back as unexpectedly as the baby had come. So she and her household busied themselves in putting the house in order against their return. The long colored tapestries which she and her handmaids had woven with pictures of their gods, Odin, Thor, and Freya as they were called, were hung up. The serfs had to scour and polish the old shields which hung around the walls. Cushions were laid on the benches, and logs upon the great hearth in the middle of the hall, so that the fire might be lighted at once. The Viking's wife helped with all this work herself so that when evening came she was very tired and slept soundly. When she woke towards morning, she was much alarmed at finding that the little baby had disappeared. She sprang up and lighted a pine chip and looked about. There was no baby, but at the foot of the bed sat a hideous toad. She was horrified at the sight and seized up a heavy stick to kill it, but it looked at her with such curious, sad eyes that she had not the heart to strike it. Once more she looked around, 
and the toad gave a faint, pitiful croak which made her start. She jumped out of bed, and threw open the window-shutter. The sun was just rising, and its beams fell upon the bed and the great toad. All at once the monster's wide mouth seemed to contract, and to become small and rosy. The limbs stretched and again took their lovely shapes, and it was her own dear little baby which lay there, and not a hideous frog. "'Whatever is this?' she cried. "'I have had a bad dream. This is my own darling elfin child.' She kissed it, and pressed it to her heart, but it struggled and bit like a wild kitten. Neither that day, nor the next, did the Viking lord come home. Although he was on his way, but the winds were against him, they were blowing southwards for the storks. It is an ill wind that blows nobody good. In the course of a few days and nights it became clear to the Viking's wife how matters stood with her little baby. Some magic power had a terrible hold over her. In the daytime it was as beautiful as any fairy, but it had a bad, wicked temper. At night, on the other hand, she became a hideous toad, quiet and pathetic, with sad, mournful eyes. There were two natures in her, both in soul and body, continually shifting. The reason of it was that the little girl brought by the frog, by day, had her mother's form and her father's evil nature, but at night her kinship with him appeared in her outward form, and her mother's sweet nature and gentle spirit beamed out of the misshapen monster. Who could release her from the power of this witchcraft? It caused the Viking's wife much grief and trouble, and yet her heart yearned over the unfortunate being. She knew she would never dare to tell her husband the true state of affairs, because he would, without doubt, according to custom, have the poor child exposed on the highway for anyone who chose to look after it. The good woman had not the heart to do this, and so she determined that he should only see the child by broad daylight. One morning there was a sound of storks' wings swishing over the roof. During the night more than a hundred pairs of storks had made it their resting place, after the great maneuvers, and they were now trying their wings before starting on their long southward flight. "'Every man ready!' they cried. "'All the wives and children, too!' "'How light we feel!' cried the young storks. "'Our legs tingle as if we were full of live frogs. How splendid it is to be traveling to foreign lands!' "'Keep in line,' said father and mother, "'and don't let your beaks clatter so fast. It isn't good for the chest.' Then away they flew. At the very same moment a horn sounded over the heath. The Viking had landed with all his men. They were bringing home no end of rich booty from the Gallic coast, where the people cried in their terror, as did the people of Britain, "'Deliver us from the wild Northmen!' What life and noise came to the Viking's home by the wild bog now! The mead cask was brought into the hall, the great fire lighted, and horses slaughtered for the feast, which was to be an uproarious one. The priest sprinkled the thralls with the warm blood of the horses as a consecration. The fire crackled and roared, driving the smoke up under the roof, and the soot dripped down from the beams. But they were used to all that. Guests were invited, and they received handsome presents. All feuds and double-dealing were forgotten. They drank deeply, and threw the knuckle-bones in each other's faces when they had gnawed them. But that was the mark of good feeling. 
The Scald, the minstrel of the times, but he was also a warrior, for he went with them on their expeditions, and he knew what he was singing about, gave them one of his ballads recounting all their warlike deeds and their prowess. After every verse came the same refrain. Fortunes may be lost, friends may die, one dies oneself, but a glorious name never dies. Then they banged on the shields, and hammered with knives or the knuckle-bones on the table before them, till the hall rang. The Viking's wife sat on the cross-bench in the banqueting hall. She was dressed in silk with gold bracelets and large amber beads. The scald brought her name into the song, too. He spoke of the golden treasures she had brought to her wealthy husband, and his delight at the beautiful child which at present he had only seen under its charming daylight guise. He rather admired her passionate nature, and said she would grow into a doughty shield-maiden or valkyrie, able to hold her own in battle. She would be of the kind who would not blink if a practiced hand cut off her eyebrows and jest with a sharp sword. The barrel of mead came to an end, and a new one was rolled up in its place. This one, too, was soon drained to the dregs, but they were a hard-headed people who could stand a great deal. They had a proverb, then. The beast knows when it is time to go home from grass, but the fool never knows when he has had enough. They knew it very well, but people often know one thing, and yet do another. They also knew that the dearest friend becomes a bore if he sits too long in one's house, but yet they sat on. Meat and drink are such good things. They were a jovial company. At night the thralls slept among the warm ashes, and they dipped their fingers in the sooty grease and licked them. Those were rare times indeed. The Viking went out once more that year on a raid. Although the autumn winds were beginning, he sailed with his men to the coast of Britain. It was just over the water, he said. His wife remained at home with a little girl, and certain it was that the foster mother soon grew fonder of the poor toad with the pathetic eyes and plaintive sighs than she was of the little beauty who tore and bit. The raw, wet autumn fog, gnaw-worn, which gnaws the leaves off the trees, lay over wood and heath, and bird loose-feather, as they called the snow, followed closely upon each other. Winter was on its way. The sparrows took the stork's nest under their protection, and discussed the absent owners in their own fashion. The stork couple and their young, where were they now? The storks were in the land of Egypt, under such a sun as we have on a warm summer's day. They were surrounded by flowering tamarinds and acacias. Mahomet's crescent glittered from every cupola on the mosques and many a pair of storks stood on the slender towers resting after their long journey. Whole flocks of them had their nests side by side on the mighty pillars, or the ruined arches of the deserted temples. The date palm lifted high its screen of branches, as if to form a sunshade. The grayish-white pyramids stood like shadowy sketches against the clear atmosphere of the desert where the ostrich knew it would find space for its stride. The lion crouched gazing with its great wise eyes at the marble sphinx half buried in the sand. The Nile waters had receded, and the land teemed with frogs. To the storks this was the most splendid sight in all the land. The eyes of the young ones were quite dazzled with the sight. See what it is to be here, and we always have the same in our warm country, 
said the mother stork, and the stomachs of the little ones tingled. "'Is there anything more to see?' they asked. "'Shall we go any further inland?' "'There is not much more to see,' said the mother stork. "'On the fertile side there are only secluded woods where the trees are interlaced by creeping plants. The elephant, with its strong clumsy legs, is the only creature which can force a way through. The snakes there are too big for us, and the lizards are too nimble. If you go out into the desert you will get sand in your eyes if the weather is good, and if it is bad you may be buried in a sandstorm. No, we are best here. There are plenty of frogs and grasshoppers. Here I stay, and you too. And so she stayed. The old ones stayed in their nests on the slender minarets resting themselves but at the same time busily smoothing their feathers and rubbing their beaks upon their red stockings. Or they would lift up their long necks and gravely bow their heads, their brown eyes beaming wisely. The young stork Misses walked about gravely among the juicy reeds, casting glances at the young bachelor storks, or making acquaintances with them. They would swallow a frog at every third step, or walk about with a small snake dangling from their beak. It had such a good effect, they thought, and then it tasted so good. The young he-storks engaged in many a petty quarrel, in which they flapped their wings furiously, and stabbed each other with their beaks till the blood came. Then they took mates, and built nests for themselves. It was what they lived for. New quarrels soon arose, for in these warm countries people are terribly passionate. All the same it was very pleasant to the old ones. Nothing could be wrong that their young ones did. There was sunshine every day, and plenty to eat. Nothing to think of but pleasure. But in the great palace of the Egyptian host, as they called him, matters were not so pleasant. The rich and mighty lord lay stretched upon his couch, as stiff in every limb as if he had been a mummy. The great painted hall was as gorgeous as if he had been lying within a tulip. Relatives and friends stood around him, he was not dead, yet he could hardly be called living. The healing marsh flower from the northern lands, which was to be found and plucked by the one who loved him best, would never be brought. His young and lovely daughter, who in the plumage of a swan had flown over sea and land to the far north, would never return. The two other swan princesses had come back, and this was the tale they told. We were all flying high up in the air when a huntsman saw us and shot his arrow. It pierced our young friend to the heart, and she slowly sank. As she sank, she sang her farewell song and fell into the midst of a forest pool. There by the shore, under a drooping birch, we buried her. But we had our revenge. We bound fire under the wings of a swallow, which had its nest under the eaves of his cottage. The roof took fire, and the cottage blazed up and he was burned in it. The flame shone on the pool where she lay, earth of the earth, under the birch. Nevermore will she come back to the land of Egypt. Then they both wept, and the father stork who heard it clattered with his beak and said, Pack of lies! I should like to drive my beak right into their breasts. Where would it break off? And a nice sight you would be then, said the mother stork. Think of yourself first, and then of your family, everything else comes second to that. I will perch upon the open cupola to-morrow, when all the wise and learned folk assemble to talk about the sick man. Perhaps they will get a little nearer to the truth. 
The sages met together and talked long and learnedly, but the stork could neither make head or tail of it. Nothing came of it, however, either for the sick man or for his daughter who was buried in the wild bog. But we may just as well hear what they said, and we may, perhaps, understand the story better, or at least as well as the stork. Love is the food of life. The highest love nourishes the highest life. Only through love can this life be won back. This had been said and well said, declared the sages. It is a beautiful idea, said the father stork at once. I don't readily understand it, said the mother stork. However, that is not my fault, but the fault of the idea. It really does not matter to me, though. I have other things to think about. The sages had talked a great deal about love, the difference between the love of lovers and that of parent and child, light and vegetation, and how the sunbeams kissed the mire, and forthwith young shoots sprang into being. The whole discourse was so learned that the father stork could not take it in, far less repeat it. He became quite pensive, and stood on one leg for a whole day with his eyes half shut. Learning was a heavy burden to him. Yet one thing the stork had thoroughly comprehended. He had learned from high and low alike what a misfortune it was to thousands of people, and to the whole country, that this man should be lying sick without hope of recovery. It would indeed be a blessed day which should see his health restored. But where blossoms the flower of healing for him? They had asked of one another, and they had also consulted all their learned writings, the twinkling stars, the winds, and the waves. The only answer that the sages had been able to give was, Love is the food of life. But how to apply that saying, they knew not. At last all were agreed that Sakura must come through the princess who loved her father with her whole heart and soul. And they at last decided what she was to do. It was more than a year and a day since they had sent her at night, when there was a new moon out into the desert to the Sphinx. There she had to push away the sand from the door at the base of it, and walk through the long passage which led right into the middle of the pyramid, where one of the mightiest of their ancient kings lay swathed in his mummy's bands in the midst of his wealth and glory. There she was to bend her head to the corpse, and it would be revealed to her where she would find healing and salvation for her father. All this she had done, and the exact spot had been shown her in dreams, where in the depths of the morass she would find the lotus flower that would touch her bosom beneath the water. And this she was to bring home. So she flew away in her swan's plumage to the wild bog in the far north. Now all this the father and mother stork had known from the beginning, and we understand the matter better than we did. We know that the marsh king dragged her down to himself, and that to those at home she was dead and gone. The wisest of them said, like the mother stork, she will look out for herself. So they awaited her return, not knowing, in fact, what else to do. I think I will snatch away the swan's plumage from the two deceitful princesses, said the father stork. Then they could not go to the wild bog to do any more mischief. I will keep the plumages up there till we find a use for them. Up where will you keep them? asked the mother stork. In her nest at the wild bog, said he. The young ones and I can carry them between us, and if they are too cumbersome, 
there are places enough on the way where we can hide them till our next flight. One plumage would be enough for her, but two are better. It is a good plan to have plenty of wraps in a northern country. You will get no thanks for it, said the mother stork. But you are the master. I have nothing to say except when I am sitting. In the meantime, the little child in the Viking's hall by the wild bog, whither the storks flew in the spring, had had a name given her. It was Helga. But such a name was far too gentle for such a wild spirit as dwelt within her. Month by month it showed itself more, and year by year, whilst the storks took the same journey, in autumn towards the Nile, and in spring towards the wild bog, the little child grew to be a big girl, and before one knew how, she was the loveliest maiden possible of sixteen. The husk was lovely, but the kernel was hard and rough, wilder than most even in those hard, wild times. Her greatest pleasure was to dabble her white hands in the blood of the horses slaughtered for sacrifice. In her wild freaks she would bite the heads off the black cocks which the priest was about to slay, and she said in full earnest to her foster-father, if thy foe were to come and throw a rope round the beams of thy house and pull it about thine ears, I would not wake thee if I could. I should not hear him for the tingling of the blood in the ear thou once boxed years ago. I do not forget. But the Viking did not believe what she said. He, like everybody else, was infatuated by her beauty. Nor did he know how body and soul changed places in his little Helga in the dark hours of the night. She rode a horse barebacked, as if she were a part of it. Nor did she jump off while her steed bit and fought with the other wild horses. She would often throw herself from the cliff into the sea in all her clothes, and swim out to meet the Viking when his boat neared the shore. And she cut off the longest strand of her beautiful long hair to string her bow. Self-made is well made, said she. The Viking's wife, though strong-willed, and strong-minded after the fashion of the times, became towards her daughter like any other weak, anxious mother, because she knew that a spell rested over the terrible child. Often, when her mother stepped out on the balcony, Helga, from pure love of teasing, it seemed, would sit down upon the edge of the well, throw up her hands and feet, and go backwards plump into the dark, narrow hole. Here, with her frog's nature, she would rise again and clamber out, like a cat dripping with water, carrying a perfect stream into the banqueting hall, washing aside the green twigs strewn on the floor. One bond, however, always held little Helga in check, and that was twilight. When it drew near, she became quiet and pensive, allowing herself to be called and directed. An inner perception, as it were, drew her towards her mother, and when the sun sank and the transformation took place, she sat sad and quiet, shriveled up into the form of a toad. Her body was now much bigger than those creatures ever are, but for that reason all the more unsightly. She looked like a wretched dwarf with the head of a frog and webbed fingers. There was something so piteous in her eyes. In voice she had none, only a hollow croak like the smothered sobs of a dreaming child. Then the Viking's wife would take it on her knee, and, looking into its eyes, would forget the misshapen form, and would often say, I could almost wish that thou wouldst always remain my dumb frog-child. Thou art more terrible to look at when thou art clothed in beauty. 
Then she would write ruins against sickness and sorcery, and throw them over the miserable girl, but they did no good at all. "'One would never think she had been small enough to lie in a water-lily,' said the father stork. "'Now she is grown up, and the very image of her Egyptian mother, whom we never saw again.' She did not manage to take such good care of herself as you and the sages said she would. I have been flying across the marsh year in, year out, and never have I seen a trace of her. Yes, I may as well tell you that all these years, when I have come on in advance of you to look after the nest and set it to rights, I have spent many a night flying about like an owl or a bat scanning the open water, but all to no purpose. Nor have we had any use for the two swan plumages which the young ones and I dragged up here with so much difficulty. It took us three journeys to get them here. They have lain for years in the bottom of the nest, and if ever a disaster happens, such as a fire in the timbered house, they will be entirely lost. And our good nest would be lost too, said the mother stork. But you think less of that than you do of your feather dresses and your marsh princess. You had better go down to her one day and stay in the mire for good. You are a bad father to your own chicks, and I have always said so since the first time I hatched a brood. If only we or the young ones don't get an arrow through our wings from that mad Viking girl. She doesn't know what she is about. We are rather more at home here than she is, and she ought to remember that. We never forget our obligations. Every year we pay our toll of a feather, an egg, and a young one, as it is only right we should. Do you think that while she is about I care to go down there as I used to do, and as I do in Egypt when I am hail fellow well met with everybody, and where I peep into their pots and kettles if I like? No, indeed, I sit up here vexing myself about her, the vixen, and you too. You should have left her in the water, Lily, and there would have been an end of her. You are much more estimable than your words, said the father stork. I know you better than you know yourself, my dear. Then he gave a hop and flapped his wings thrice, proudly stretched out his neck and soared away without moving his outspread wings. When he had gone some distance he made some more powerful strokes, his head and neck bending proudly forward, while his plumage gleamed in the sunshine. What strength and speed there were in his flight. He is the handsomest of them all yet, said the mother stork, but I don't tell him that. End of section 35